Hello everyone, this is Airy in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast, Oak you're here. Today, I have an amazing conversation that literally since it happened a week and a half ago or so, I have been talking about it because I had this talk with Malcolm Ocean and he turns out to be this incredibly thoughtful and really, really insightful person and him and I as you will hear, I can say that we became a super organism, <laughs> which is a really cool concept. We talk about how to hold our differences in perspective with other people in a way that makes us a super organism, that gives us new perspective, that adds depth to our perspective. We also talk about the idea that it takes a village to understand a village, which is a really deep concept that's been so helpful for me lately as I try to try to grok my own village. And as always, this conversation is exactly that. It's a conversation. And it's has it's unedited and has spaciousness and breath and life. And I really appreciate that. So I think you're really going to like it. I also want to do a bit of housekeeping here and let you know that I am doing an experiment that I want you to be a part of. I am experimenting with philosophical coaching, which is a type of coaching practice where I use a deep philosophical inquiry and a nonviolent communication, empathic listening, as a way to suss out the shape of your life and inquire into its nooks and crannies and its meanings and the stories that you have about yourself and whether or not they're working and what other stories might be and how we can bring those stories into being. So I'm offering the next 60 days through January, I'm offering no financial obligation calls. They'll be between 60 and 150 minutes in length. And we'll use dialogue between us, the same kind of dialogue that I bring to this podcast. It's a type of dialogue that you're actually familiar with if you listen to the show. It's a very open, honest, vulnerable, intimate. Um, I use a lot of reflection. And this is something that uh, I'm going to start doing professionally. And so I want to start with a safe-to-fail probe into this practice, and I want to invite you into it. So if you're listening and you would like to get on the calendar with me, you can just email me at airyintheair at gmail.com. Like always, you could also support this podcast on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash airyintheair. And that helps so much. So thanks for being here and consider being a part of this beautiful experiment with me. I would love to talk to you. Um, And without further ado, here's some music and an amazing talk with my new friend, Malcolm Ocean. Enjoy.
Hi, man. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you. How are you? Nice good. to meet you. Yeah. Where are you? I'm in uh, Victoria, uh, well, British Columbia hmm. on Vancouver Island. Awesome. Yeah. Beautiful place. Yeah. So what is it that you do for a living? Yeah. Um, um, I run a software company, basically. It's actually, it's an interesting thing. So I listened to your Fuck Greatness episode this morning. Uh-huh. And um, when I was in high school, I, part of me, I was sort of, you know, becoming a musician, whatever that means. Um, and I was like, okay, what do I want to do for university? And I was sort of like, do I want to go like try to be a musician as a career or do I want to like go study engineering or something and I ended up being like I think I want to do music on the side like I don't think I want to like have a need to make music in order to live like I think that would fuck up my art that's Um, that's wise yeah and I feel I feel really good about that um yeah. So the software that you make is for uh collaborate. It's like a group work thing, right? If I remember it's, correctly. It's mostly like a sort of solo productivity type tool. I and mean, there's a couple of um, group pieces to it. Like you can, um, you can go in um, like co-working rooms, you can have an accountability partner and there's like one or two other kind of group features, but for the most part, it's just like helping you, center in on like what matters to me today what do i want to work on mm-hmm. cool man and i kind of described you this morning my best friend asked who you were and i kind of described i described you as a game b thinker yeah totally i'll i'll i'll, I'll accept that yeah so tell me um where your thinking is in game b more specifically, I, I suppose, like what kind of things do you find yourself ruminating on the most in that space? I've talked about yeah. Game B a lot on my podcast, so I think that most people are familiar that Game B is the concept of future human civilization that is regenerative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I like, I like your question. It's like, you know, and I, I'm also just taking in what it means to sort of be a, be a, a quote unquote thinker. Oh, that's interesting that you were ruminating on that too. Cause the moment that I said it, I was just like, I was kind of like struck with like gratitude, like what a thing it is to be a part of like a community, although it's quite loose game B as a community is a pretty mm-hmm. loose thing, but amazing to be involved with people who think about future human civilization and what it means to be a person and what it means to to grow and iterate on a really really like a, a very large scale mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it's it's like you know i i think i've also held a sense of the importance of being grounded in not exactly chopping wood and carrying water for me, but, you know, like fixing bugs and answering support tickets, mm-hmm. right? It's like not not sort of becoming such that all of my day is spent, quote unquote, thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so there's, there's a way in which I'm, I'm actually, I guess, trying on, you know, something of not exactly even an identity as game B thinker as you're proposing it, but a role. It's like, oh, I, I know who I know who I think of when you say game B thinker. And I, I haven't been um, myself doing the podcast circuits that I've seen all those people do yet. You know, I would say yours is the first podcast that I've been on where game B has sort of been at the center of a lot of the conversations on there. Um, like I brought it up on some other podcasts. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm thinking about Jordan Hall and Jim Rutt and, you know, so, and who are some of the OG, you know, game B guys. And, um, although I recently heard Jordan say somewhere that he was sort of stepping away from game B as a main lens for what he was doing, because it had sort of become, it had sort of calcified a little bit. And he was like, well, time to like move on to post game B, you know, like not, not post game B as a stage of humanity, but as a, as a lens for what's happening. So, um, so I, I really value the fluidity there. Um, and I, I will answer your question more directly, but in the meantime, I'm enjoying sort of just like stirring in the, the yeah. of I, I hear this, like, I, I like that, that what I heard you say was that your day is not merely ephemeral thought after the other but that you actually like have actionable things in your day that keep you grounded that you're actually like working on things because the concept of game b really is incredibly abstract it's such a hyper object it's like oh the world is like the world is all of these ways which is like i've kind of described it as like huge world tiny head tough to fit the whole thing in there right like really hard to fit the whole thing in there so and and it's often the meta crisis like when covid came online i really dove deep into this space and that's when the podcast really took off for me and i found myself like almost unwell like like i had like shaken my own psychological well-being by looking into the meta crisis so hard and for so long that I was like, holy fuck, I need to go outside and ride my bike <laughs> like right now. Like I need a bike ride. Yeah. Like, okay. It's not all doom and gloom. And um, so the idea that game B is such a big concept that it can be a calcifying lens for the way that we see the world. I totally agree. I just recently listened to a podcast on the jordan peterson podcast with michael schellenberger who wrote apocalypse never which is kind of a uh, it's a very interesting book about environmental change and what he refers to as apocalyptic environmental activism um, and mm. i think in some ways and schmachtenberger has run into this recently that the idea of calling everything existential risk and inevitably self-terminating or inexorably self-terminating was his term is a pretty damning thing and like a lens that's like might be over certain and so yeah i, so. I really liked something that i think it was jordan hall said on a no sorry daniel thorson said on a uh, a half hour um, kind of more casual chat that he did with, I think it was Benita Roy shortly after his episodes mm. with, oh, what's the guy? Um, 
extinction Jim Bendel. Um, Jim Bendel had this whole paper about, you know, collapse is inevitable. You got to prepare extinction rebellion, you know, localism, blah, blah, blah. And so Jim Bendel has his whole thing and he's, he's like collapse is inevitable. People just aren't accepting that. And Daniel Thorson used this brilliant phrase, um, sort of debriefing that those episodes with somebody else. And the phrase was perhaps inevitable collapse. Mm -hmm. And what I love about that is it, it's got the inevitability in it. Mm -hmm. We are actually saying, we don't know if yes. we're in the timeline where we can do something about this. Mm. Like we might be in a timeline where effectively, as far as any agent that exists at present is concerned, like in terms of the size of agents that there are, like I'm an agent and you're an agent, but we are barely an agent, right? You and I right now, yeah. we kind of have a tiny bit of collective agency. You can like do something by making a good conversation right now. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of the, the amount of collective agency we have. You can, we maybe behold the big world, two tiny heads yes. uh, a little better. But, um, but yeah, so as far as any individual agent is concerned right now, it might be effectively inevitable. Uh-huh. But we don't know. Yeah. And so holding that there is on the one hand a potential inevitability, but also that we actually, it's actually an even more uncomfortable position than inevitable collapse. Like I, I feel personally like Jem Bendel is taking a little bit of a cop out by just saying, oh, it's inevitable. Like that puts you on this lovely timeline where you get to not worry about trying to stop it and you get to simply prepare for it to collapse. And it's weirder mm. if you have to do both. Mm. And it's more uncomfortable and more unpleasant. So it's, it seems like he's like, oh yeah, I've accepted this terrible thing, but it's actually harder. It, you know, it takes more courage know. to not accept it, but also to accept that it might be. Yeah. Yeah. That's a liminal, that's a liminal space between those two things. And I think I like the Daniel Thorson line because it collides inevitable and humility inevitable and uncertainty and it like looks at inevitable through uncertain mm -hmm. which is a weird thing it's almost it's, like it's, a super weird, it's almost yeah. a contradiction just to say it that you're looking at inevitable through uncertain yeah yeah but I mean, it's, it's sort of like if you were in a, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't think we need a further analogy or metaphor for that, but it's, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this is like, this is a, it's like, there's a psychological reality to how there's a, it's just psychologically quite difficult to hold that. It, it, it's difficult to hold the position that it is inevitable and it's it's scary to think that there's something impending dooming looming disastrous apocalyptic that's a difficult thing mm -hmm. to look at and so i think we've seen in the last few decades, we've seen people who are so convinced 
that that is the case, that the science points in that direction, that the logic points in that direction, that the math points in that direction. That human uh, uh, incentive landscapes point in that direction. Yes. Sometimes how it gets framed too. Yes, that our entire society, that our structure, that the patriarchy, that the whole thing, that capitalism is pointed in this direction. And it I kind of is. It, in some ways it is. <laughs> it also is likely the reason that we have been able to see it, right? That we've come, that, mm-hmm, we've, like, mm-hmm. that we've like not had to, like that we've lowered the infant mortality rate and made our lives abundant enough to recreate and to ruminate so much that we can like be like oh wait no oh well you know i had some spare time so i added this up and it seems like the world is ending yeah and we're like okay so yeah this is a difficult thing to face i guess my point here yeah quickly is that and this is a big part of what schellenberger's book apocalypse never is about is that in the last few decades the certainty the certainty of the inevitability of the collapse of our world our ecology our economy this entire paradigm the certainty of that inevitable collapse has been used to permit some really radical catastrophe stories and apocalyptic narratives that are not always conducive to change. They're not conducive to helping people come into a space where they can think about the problem in a way that it doesn't just absolutely trigger their physical self-preservation denial response Mm -hmm. or their flight response or their fight response or their fawn or freeze or just like these like very visceral psychological realities when we have something that we're staring down the barrel of something and so that's just an interesting That's like one side of the pendulum when we're thinking about how we can hold this. Uh, it's almost like a, it's almost like a multiverse. It's like a, we have to simultaneously consider that the world won't end and that it will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Cause it's like, almost like we do like the space between those things. We can't really actually like, there's no way to reasonably be there. You kind of have to just like, do the uncertainty principle like the cat is both dead and alive the Mm. world is both like ending and not ending yeah yeah and and you you know our basic categories of what all of that means are so um like limited like there's you know there's a huge difference between collapse that looks like well the the big global supply chain dance stops dancing you know the musical chairs stop on that one and then it's like well then there's a lot of very hungry people there's a lot of you know shortages of almost everything because it's all pretty fucking global at this point um 
it, you know, like transistors are only made in a couple places in the world. So nowhere else can make laptops if the thing isn't running. Um, or even, you know, continue manufacturing very simple gadgets like electric toothbrushes and, you know, um, stuff like that. Not that, the, not that electric toothbrushes are like a necessary thing, but anyway, um, um, where was it going with that? Uh, right, but that's, you know, that's a very different scenario than, or, or that's a very different set of factors than a, a set of factors that's more like, you know, dramatically increased hurricanes or war. You know, those are, those are two very different collapsish scenarios. We could get all three, you know, one could cause the other. I don't think either of the war or supply chain thing would cause the hurricanes, but, you know. Yeah, the failure modes, the variety of failure modes, pick your failure mode. Mm -hmm. There's a whole buffet of them. Yeah, oh, we'll, we'll I, get I all spent of them. a long time. I spent a long time being concerned about um, AI risk. And that's part of the, the context um, for me coming into conversations about existential risks and global catastrophic risks and so on. Um, and it's part of the context of me not not agreeing with anybody who refers to climate change as an existential risk. It's like, there will still be people. Like we are very weirdly resilient creatures and the, the earth would have to get really, really weird before people would stop figuring out some way to live on it. Um, you know. I love that perspective. I totally a million percent agree with that. And the and, idea and that and humans clear, are just gonna the, fucking lay down and take it is like, come on. Yeah, and, and that's, that's like, that's talking about existential risks. It's like, there will still be people. However, global catastrophic risks, it's like, sure, climate change is definitely one of those. Could, you know, could take out half the population or more, you know, like it, it really like, um, yeah, I don't know. So that's, that's kind of where I've, yeah, part of my context for coming into, coming into this conversation is having been sort of concerned concerned about existential risks, partially in the context of thinking about AI um, and being connected with some of the folks who are doing AI safety research and so on. Um, okay, I'm also, I feel but, like- but, but, but yeah, I, I do kind of want to go back to your question though, of like, what is it that I'm thinking about? Because by and large, I don't spend my day thinking about collapse. Um, I, I'm, I am, in a, in a sort of immediate project sense, um, hoping that some combination of luck and other people working on that is going to uh, have there be enough time for the work that I'm doing to matter. Um, and I don't get to know that for sure. That, that is a bet. Like that is a, you know, there's a big uncertainty there, but totally. from, from where I found my self it's sort of been sort of been clear that that's my thing to do is is what i'm what i'm working on which is cultural stuff around uh what uh what jordan hall calls the meta protocol um and so i'd be happy to dive into a bit more of what what that is what it means what what my work on it has been and um yeah i think maybe we'll come back to that but i think that the the pivot here is actually 
as we talk about what it is like to know your role in the metacrisis or find it or do it, it almost, it makes me think about, the question sounds something like, what is like the healthy way to hold the metacrisis? What's the mm -hmm. healthy way to hold existential risk? How can, you know, because basically what I've seen, if I do just a slight cultural observation here, you basically have Greta Thunberg on one side, who's just total outrage and outrage culture around existential risk, whether it be social or ecological, economic. On the other side, you have denial. Basically, we have outrage and denial mm -hmm. are the two most prevalent positions. I find that like conspiracy is another really uh, ravenous position to be able to hold this in our, you know, this hyper object of, of hypothetical inevitable collapse. So it's almost, my question is almost like, what's the healthy way to hold this thing in our heads? Yeah. I find, well, yeah, I, I just, just for a little of my own experience to preface it, as COVID came online, I found myself like kind of like torn between my fear of control, governmental in particular, mm -hmm. and the information ecology being poisoned, broken, and trampled for so long that I had just no trust of the media source or the information ecology at large. And I found myself in a really disempowered place. Like just the feeling of that was just incredibly disempowering um, to not know and to have the feeling that I couldn't know and that I also was like had fears around it. So I think I'm just acknowledging that this kind of thing, trying to take this big world and cram it into our heads is a psychological well-being hazard. Yeah. And yeah. It's an extreme sport. <laughs> it is super fucking extreme. So, so I guess the question becomes like, what's a helmet look like for this sport? What do hmm. knee pads, what do knee pads look like for this sport? Wow. Not that question. we're, not that we're, not that we're not going to play it and not that we don't expect it to fuck us up a bit and not that we don't expect it to fucking mm. be able to mm -hmm. kill us or break us entirely, but how wow. do we kind of hedge ourselves a little bit? What are the pads here? Cause there's some of us who want to play the game. Like, like, you know, I came in in COVID and I took a beating and I fucking was like, oh man, I saw into the belly of the beast and I can't unsee that shit. But then I like took a bike ride and I came back. I was like, all right, like let's keep now what now what, you know? So, yeah. Hmm. What a question. Well, what does the helmet look like for the, for the, the game of the extreme for the extreme sport of, like, how would I frame it? Something like uh, attempting to behold and act into the present global situation. Yeah, it's almost like a, it's like a meta crisis bull rider. 
Mm. It's like the the bull rider of the meta crisis. Yeah, yeah. Anyone stupid enough to strap themselves <laughs> to this fucking big ass hyper object? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially to do it publicly, like on a podcast. It's just like, all right, now we've got a crowd of people. We're gonna put his helmet on. Yeah. This so one. I mean, and I here, here's here's the thing. Like, I think one of the most important, you know, metaphorical helmets here is actually other people. It's having people to make sense of things with so that you're not alone. Um, because I, you know, at, at minimum, you can't be sane about what's going on without yeah. reading a lot of books. Yeah. You know, even if you're not in a lot of live dialogue with people, you know, being plugged into the thinking of many other people so that you're not mm-hmm. just kind of in your own echo chamber of your mind yeah. is, um, is vital. And, and then really stepping into dialogue and i think that's part of why the game b sort of podcast scene sort of thrives the way it does because it is a it is a form of thinking that wants to be in uh in dialogue with yeah. people i mean all all thinking does in some fundamental sense yes but it's i, th- I would say that people in this space are more self-aware of that and more aware of the need for high quality dialogue as part of having high quality thinking That's one of the best parts of Game B is that it is, in its very nature, acknowledged to be a collective issue. Yeah. And it's an anarchic thinking system, essentially, that knowing that no one person is going to, like, become the leader, that Game B knows that it's not, like, a tyrant that we need to, like, enforce this thing on the world. It's, like, effervescent, emergent, self-organizing systems are Mm -hmm. likely the best solution. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's a pretty good segue into some of the stuff that I was mentioning around talking about the meta protocol and the work that I've been doing. Yeah. I would love to dive into that. I just want to note that, as you said, that the helmet for the bull rider of the meta crisis, that other people and being plugged into the thinking of other people is like the fucking rodeo clown. That's having mm. a rodeo clown in the ring with you. I, I grew up in rural central mm. Oregon. So fucking rodeo is like ah, something very, I'm very, very, very familiar at with. At hand as a metaphor for you. And so what happens is when you get bucked off this, this bucking bull of the metacrisis, the rodeo clown distracts the bull so that you can get up and run away before the bull gores you to death. That's long, that's long story short. And that is to say that when the bucking bull of the meta crisis knocks you down, being plugged into other people's thinking and other people's perspective mm. is what allows you to get back up and get on your feet again so that the whole thing doesn't just hold you down into a depressive spiral mm. that holds you down and keeps you from getting back up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeehaw. <laughs> Yeah. And, and also, you know, insofar as we're talking about a hyper object, it's like, you know, like you would have a lot of trouble making sense of everything that's happening with just like, you know, uh, a tiny cluster of your neurons, like, you know, that you need the whole, you know, a, a human brain is kind of appropriately sized for a human life, you know, and and a and a sort of 
set of relationships that a human would have. And I'm thinking about like the, you know, it takes a village to raise a child phrase, but there's something sort of slightly more subtle than that, which is like, it takes a village to, to like make sense of a village. Hmm. Mm, I like that. That's like the humility that like not every adult agent is like even capable of understanding the complexity that even happens in the three families of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes all of us to like be in dialogue with one another to like keep our even like even each marriage in the neighborhood, like Mm -hmm. almost depends on all the other marriages and the other people to like make sense of. Mm, Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. And so it's like, there's, there's, there's definitely going to be some people who are taking way more responsibility for making sense of the whole of a given community or set of relationships or whatever, you know, if you've got, um, if you think about probably a kind of classical, a classic, you know, village or something like that, you could imagine, you know, there's the kids who are, whose job is being kids. There's the, uh, you know, uh, adults or there's the there's there's the sort of the next generation up whose job is raising the kids and uh you know making things work in the world um and then you've got the grandparents who are kind of just hanging out and it sort of doesn't really seem like they're doing much in particular but in fact like the the community would be a completely different place if you didn't have them gossiping and making sense of everything and asking is jim okay like you know, like he's like, you know, and just having the time to spend a lot of time doing that. Right. Yes. Um, so, you know, I think there's a place for people who are sort of full-time, uh, friends. Uh, huh. That's me in this neighborhood. Nice. Yeah. So I just want to reflect back what I heard in a a slightly different way. And I think that it's important right now to kind of define hyper object I am, I know that you and Good I luck. are both. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I typically define a hyper object as things that are so big and complex that any one person or even like collective intelligence at this point is unable to wholly grasp. This could be something like the atmosphere or the global economy or um, climate change, right? These are all things so vast, complex, and interconnected that one person or even a group of people or even all people are going to have a, it's essentially an impossible task to fully understand these things. And what I heard you say with the, it takes a village to understand a village Mm -hmm. is to take that idea of hyper object and the incredible interconnected complexity of the atmosphere, the climate, all of these different things And that brings a humility of our own understanding down into our interpersonal relationships that even three families relating to each other is essentially a hyper object Mm -hmm. that it is even 15 people interpersonally relating with children and families and relational dynamics is so incredibly complex that it takes all of us to be able to even grasp it. 
And there are still things, because as you say it, like I just like am thinking of my own lived experience here as I just live in community with multiple families and multiple generations and my own shit. It's just so incredibly complex. And so much of it falls through the cracks of our own understanding. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. though we're all just like yesterday, I just cried at the caliber of men and women that we are like, we're just like, this group is like so strong and amazing and virtuous and, and talented. And even then we all put so much effort into our relationships and our communication and our parenting and all this stuff. And even then there's things that just fall through the cracks that we don't understand that just like, and so I don't know, that's kind of what I heard. And I really like that idea that like the complexity of interpersonal relationships is, is nearly a hyper object itself. We don't actually mm-hmm. have to yeah. extend it all the way out to geopolitics and the global economy. Yeah. I, I find fractals a vital concept for making sense mm-hmm. of anything. Yeah. Uh, well, not anything, but like anything related to any of this. Yeah. Um, it's like, there's a there's a self-similarity to sense-making across so many different scales. Um, and it's different. And I still haven't mapped out all the ways in which it's different. Um, but um, yeah, and I think I think it is worth here. And I don't know if we need multiple words for this or what, but I'm sort of feeling into, I think the root of hyperobject is, is in reference to like the notion of some sort of shape that is more than three dimensions. Like a hypercube is also known as a tesseract, I think, or maybe hyper refers to not just four dimensions, but you know, any number greater than three. And there's something called a hypersphere and you can kind of define these mathematical objects and, and, and the metaphor there, I guess, is pointing at how if you've got one of these objects that's kind of located in four dimensions and you're trying to look at it, but you're a three-dimensional creature, like you're going to have difficulty <sighs> seeing all of it at once. <sighs> you, you can see all of it, but you can't see all of it at once. Like you have to kind uh, of pass it through three dimensions. And mm. when, when you do that, it'll transform. You know, the, the hypersphere will go from looking like a very large sphere to a tiny point, you know, and the the hypercube might look like a cube or it might look like a weird, you know, hexagonal prism or something. Um, and, and that's only talking about very simple shapes in four dimensions. Never mind the, you know, much more complex network structures in hundreds or thousands of dimensions. Having said that, there are times when one person might be beholding some hyper object and sort of rotating it in their head and kind of going, oh, I see a thing here. And then they have the difficulty of trying to convey it to others. Uh And at any given time, the others can only see, like, you know, they can only compress that hyper object into very small chunks that they can convey to other people. And if they're lucky, they can get, well, or skilled, you know, (laughs) but if, if, uh, ideally, they can, they can convey at least a projection of the hyper object that's an accurate projection, you know, like Uh an accurate shadow of that that hyper object casts on the world. Yes. But even there, it can still be really disorienting. And this is something I've been observing recently as I've been connecting with, you know, just a few different people um, that are very visionary and can see possibilities that other people can't see and they're working towards them is they try to convey their visions to other people. 
and the other people see a projection and they're like, oh yeah, okay, I kind of get it. But a projection will shift and transform rapidly compared to something if you're actually seeing the whole in all of its dimensions. Because mm-hmm. if you take a different slice of the projection, you know, imagine looking at an x-ray of broccoli, right? Like it first, it looks like a thousand tiny points. And then it's just like, you know, a dozen circles. And then it's just one circle, like as mm-hmm. it kind of the broccoli passes through the like the slices or like an MRI, sorry, not yeah. an, an MRI, MRI of a broccoli or something. Anyway, so that's just something I've been thinking about. Um, I, I think I think it's really weird because it's like on one level we can we can behold the whole right like uh, you and I can just say hey th- that global situation though and you're like yeah I know right and like that's us beholding the whole but it's like it's not in very high fidelity right it's not uh-huh. we're not really we, we, yeah the resolution is an important it's not very really, actionable right yeah. you know and we just go geez yeah that whole though how's it doing um and uh and so it's like, yeah, being able to find actionable pieces. And this, this connects to that, that thing you were saying about the, um, what was it? Finding your role in the metacrisis or something like that. It's sort of like, from where I am, like what, what are the leverage points that are remotely leveraging towards anything that I care about that I have any ability to nudge at the moment or capacity to learn how to nudge or whatever. And for me, like by the time I started seriously thinking about these questions, I was already embedded deep in uh, in a culture change project that later recognized itself as part of, you know, part of this thing that could be called Game B or as a, an analog of this thing that could be called Game B. But it was sort of doing its own thing without knowing that term um, for many years. And so I realized, well, you know, I've got some friends who are working on AI and they're really, you know, AI safety and they're really worried about the, you know, the timelines there. And maybe that screws us up in the next five years before I can sort out this culture stuff. But where I, where I am, it's like, I need to be pouring my energy into like grokking and growing and nurturing this um, collaborative culture work and that's just what's going to be mine to do. And I hope that everybody else manages to take care of everything else. I hope that a nuke doesn't drop tomorrow. Uh, you know, I've got a lot of hopes, but like, you, you know, I, I think that's a great example where, you know, there are, there are slight leverage points for civilians on whether or not nuclear war happens, but by and large, we mostly just have to hope it doesn't. Mm. Like really most people are not going to be doing anything about that because the, the forces are already just so large that are pushing that in different directions. Um, and I mean, we're in a really weird phase right now where there was a whole bunch of disarmament during the Cold War and, and, and after, but then now it's like super multipolar. I don't know. Again, this is not what I spend most of my time thinking about. I mostly just boggle at it sometimes and go, I don't know how to make sense of this. And, I like that and, and so, so I guess what I would say is like where my attention's been at is mostly like, how can I cultivate in myself and in other people the capacity and the capacities and understandings that lead people to be able to enter into really powerful dialogue with each other that can behold vast hyper objects effectively?
I really like the analogy that you made of the hyperobject as some kind of physical object in four dimensions. Mm-hmm. And what struck me, you said that you can see all of it. You just can't see all of it at any given time, mm-hmm. which is really interesting observation of perspective. And I think that's just true of where each of us live in our sense-making space that like we have the ability to see really complex things, but we can't always see them and their complexity in one given moment. So it's an iterative perspective. It's an iterative observation and it's changing over time. What I want to roll all the way back to and have you double click on is your what you said about fractals, that fractals is an incredibly useful mental concept lens that helps you talk about, understand, or perceive these really big, deep, complex things. And so I was hoping that maybe you would start with what, like, almost like define a fractal because people know what a fractal looks like, but they don't actually know what a fractal is. And when I learned about the Mandelbrot sequence, I fucking went way down the rabbit hole and was mind blown Mm -hmm. as to what a fractal really is. Mm -hmm. And so maybe kind of start us there and then tell us how this mental conception is helpful in, as you say, grokking these really big, complex hyperobjects. Yeah. My most recent lens on fractals comes from reading a book uh, by Jeffrey West called Scale. Uh, he's coming out of the Santa Fe Institute and writing about research that they did there, where he was trying to answer some questions about the nature of life and death. And like, are there, are there mathematical factors that constrain how organisms work, basically? And you know, because obviously organisms are, you know, survival of the fittest is sort of how they evolve. But, you know, why is, why is there no Godzilla? Like, well, Godzilla is not fit, but why? Right? You know, you can make a fake Godzilla that seems very terrifying and whatever. But it turns out that the, you know, the nature of how gravity works and the nature of how oxygen works and blood and, you know, cell waste means that you actually just can't make a creature that big. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't have the right surface area to volume ratio mm. um, or, or muscle cross-sectional area to, to mass ratio. Um, and, you know, this is why elephants' legs are so thick and, by contrast, why insects are tiny, spindly legs and they can just, like, chill out on the ceiling. Um, anyway, so, so this gets into fractals because... Um, I would describe fractals functionally. So, so fractals show up in, in, in a couple different places. They, they originated as a concept in trying to measure how long a coastline is, um, where they found out that the length of coastline that you get depends on how small your measuring tool is. Like if you just, if you just measure hundred kilometer segments of coastline, you're like, oh yeah, it's like, it's like 600 kilometers. Okay, cool. But if you like, if you have 10 kilometer segments of coastline, turns out there's a bunch of little inlets. And you can end up with a number like a thousand kilometers of coastline. 
and then you you then you do with one kilometer increments and you might think it would converge but it actually doesn't converge because eventually you get all the little tiny waves mm -hmm. and um sorry maybe it does converge but it doesn't it doesn't converge the way you'd think yeah um and um So, so, but that's that's an unintentional fractal. That is that is a functionless fractal. That's not sort of doing anything. Functionally, though, um, you know, why is it that our lungs look like trees? Like, well, our lungs are kind of the opposite of trees. They're they're both trying to maximize surface area per unit space, and in order to exchange gases. Right? Like that's why trees are shaped the way they are. And that's why lungs are shaped the way they are is to do that surface area thing. And it, the way to do this is by self, the way to do this in an organized way is by self-similarity where you can have, um, and that's a, sort of the core of what fractals are is this uh, self-similar structure, something that's the same on multiple scales. And so you have, um, you know, you have the base, you know, the first branch of the lungs and then, then they branch again, then they branch again, then they branch again, then they branch again. And so this is not unlike how a, a you know, a freeway with many lanes branches off into, you know, smaller and smaller um, uh, roads. And actually a recent thing that looks very much like a lung that I was seeing was a, a, a marina here. It has a bunch mm -hmm. of little boats all docked and it's very much like a set of lungs in that you've got to somehow, it's two-dimensional rather than three, but you've got to somehow have people be able to walk to the boats and boats be able to go out to the open water. And in order to do that, you, you want to maximize surface area because you, you don't want your marina to just be one giant pier that goes way out into the whatever. Oh, maximize surface area. And you want to minimize the walking distance that anybody has to do or the boating distance that they have to do to get out for a given number of boats. And it turns out if you do this, you reinvent a shape that looks like lungs. Like you've got this one main thing that goes out and then it branches off and then it branches even tinier and stuff. And so, um, yeah, so that's a sort of fractal. Fractals are this recursively self-similar thing that is pretty vital for organizing both resources and information at multiple scales, which if you want to do anything at a big scale, you've got to also make it work at a small scale. Yeah. You know, a, a blue whale has cells that are approximately the same size as ours. Yep. Like they're making things work at small scales as well as, as large ones. So I, I think about fractals often in the context of uh, sense-making and perspective-taking and trust dancing. Um, essentially that within a given person, you've got a bunch of different perspectives, a bunch of different ways of making sense of the world that are necessarily diverse because if they weren't, they would be redundant. But this sometimes means that they apparently contradict and it's easy for people to end up compartmentalized around these different ways of seeing and kind of oscillating back and forth between them. It's like, oh, part of me knows, you know, it's like, I should quit smoking, but then I keep going back to it. And, you know, my, my inner rebel just like won't stop eating cookies, even though I know they're bad for me, right? Like you've got these 
inner battles, right? These inner struggles that are that are structurally not that dissimilar to a a struggle between a parent and a child. In fact, I mean, many of these struggles are actually an internalized parent-child mm-hmm. relationship. Um, but um, but yeah, so you've got these you've got these battles. You've got these these sort of you know these cold wars happening internally to people and um and so as part of being able to think together you and i effectively we need to be managing effectively also our internal landscape of different perspectives like you know we're bringing my you know my perspective and your perspective here but it's like i actually have at least two perspectives even with my own eyes because there's two of them they actually disagree slightly on where everything's located. You know, like one of them will be like, will be like, ah, oh, like this is to the left of my finger. This is the right of my finger. But it's, and it's not, the answer is neither. It's just everything's arranged in 3D space. With respect to the idea of left or right, 3D space is a hyper object, but we're actually optimized to perceive this, this 3D world. Um, even though in some sense, our visuals, fields are two-dimensional it's like the individual fields are two-dimensional but the the whole produces this three-dimensional depthy world and so similarly you and i can bring our different perspectives together and they can cancel each other out or end up in battle you know we could be in an argument right now over something um or instead of canceling each other out we can find the places where the difference is actually deeply powerful for allowing us to perceive that hyper object. Mm-hmm. It's insightful. That's really cool. I, I hadn't made that connection between like hyper objects, three-dimensional space. The I, I've used the visual um, perspective taking analogy before, but it's cool seeing that, that merge with the hyper object thing. That's to say that the I heard it as like the difference between our perspectives can be insightful as to the the object itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what it is that we're perceiving. Yeah, because just as my left eye and my right eye work together and average the difference to know. Well, they sort to, of average the difference, but they also sort of do some. They also sort of transcend the difference. Yes, 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 yes. They they use the difference to to create the perception of depth. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, like depth perception is because of the difference between left and right eye, and our brains essentially triangulate without mathematics. It essentially triangulates the difference between left eye, right eye to suss out distance, mm-hmm. which is incredible. And yeah. just as our eyes can do that, we can use my perspective and your perspective to have some kind of deeper perspective to suss exactly. out depth yeah. based on the difference of our perspectives. Exactly. Yeah. And so mm, that's, that's delicious. Yeah. That is delicious right there. Yeah. That is, that's actually the question that I asked earlier, what is the helmet and the leather glove mm. for this Metacrisis bull rider? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's one of the biggest protective devices out that is the deep yeah. deep protective device that is 
understanding what dialogue is. Because and being able to do it. And being able to do it, yes. Yeah. To be able to actually hold dialogue, which is not easy, especially coming from where I've grown up. I'm the middle of three boys and I have a strong dad. And it's like, we're much more prone to argumentation and fistfighting than mm. a deep dialogue where we can understand the difference of our perspectives as something really insightful. Mm -hmm. What one way I say, I, one way I like to analogize this is diversity is difference. Difference is potential energy mm. in a, in a, basic physical sense this is this is true i i'm i'm stretching this a little bit into metaphor space but barely really yeah. truly barely you know difference between people is not literally mechanical energy in that sense so i i want to i want to be really clear where the metaphor stops but it is a difference of height that makes a uh gravity powered uh water flow system work that's it what is makes different of it is a difference of electrical potential that makes a battery or a uh, capacitor work like it is that difference that makes that difference um and gregory bateson has this great quote information is difference that makes a difference hmm. and so differences between people are a, a, a are intrinsically and necessarily a source of energy and mm -hmm. um and so if you try to build a very homogenous organization there's going to be something sort of stilted about the the energy there and boring as fuck right but simply adding diversity to your organization does not add useful energy it just adds energy uh -huh. and if you don't know how to organize it if you don't know how to make sense of all the different perspectives that are happening, then the energy can be explosive. Mm -hmm. Like, like a bomb is a release of energy, you know, mm -hmm. and it, you can't contain it. You can't use it. You can't harness it into the kind of creativity that the company sort of wants to be about. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's, I think a, for any given, you know, culture at any given time, there's a, there's a right amount of, being of like how much diversity, how much difference the, uh, the group can metabolize and mm -hmm. um, trying to go faster than that is just going to explode things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I think it's also worth noting when we talk about, you know, diversity in organizations, it's like, you know, there are, there are topics within that that come up a lot in the context of uh, identity and in um, sort of differences that are charged with historical yeah, social justice. Yeah. Well, that whole space of things. Um, but there's also diversity of personality is, is huge. And that doesn't get talked about as much in part because it's less visible and in part because people don't see it as an axis of uh, privilege, even though like certain personality types are way more likely to be billionaires than others, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, so there's, there is some, correspondence of that but it's not super heritable and it's 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 a whole thing um but i i yeah there's there's something about really being able to use difference effectively yeah and 
and partially partially that's a perspective shift like recognizing oh the difference is energy but it's also partially shit difference is energy we don't actually want to get too much of it in one place it might blow up yes you know we need to be able to manage it yes that's so interesting yeah that brings up a lot of things for me the first analogy that's just so that's just the first thing is that uh, sexual polarity mm-hmm. yeah that's definitely a kind of difference as energy that's totally difference as energy yeah um also just the n- nature oh. of conflict too yeah that as you're saying too much difference can bring in energy that without being able to organize handle it it can be destructive that is the differing opinions getting out of control and becoming violence say yeah yeah exactly yeah so this like there's some kind of sweet spot here of and i feel like it is just the perspective it's like a meta perspective of knowing that the difference is energy that the difference is helpful that the difference can be illuminating to the object itself that mm-hmm. the difference that you have in perspective gives you another dimension of perspective. Yeah. Because exactly. left, left eye, right eye gives you another dimension of perspective that is depth. And to have Malcolm left eye, airy right eye, and to be able to see the difference in our perspectives as it's almost like the thing it brings up for me is it's almost like it brings you behind the difference. It like gives you a meta awareness of opinion, say, or of perspective yeah, yeah. that you're like, I, it I, contextualizes. This is part of where it's valuable to distinguish. Yeah. Like I, I frame a lot, you know, when I'm thinking about disagreements, or, or conflicts on a, uh, not so, so much exactly on the level of fighting, although there is, there is a way in which it applies there too. Um, when I think of disagreements and conflicts, I really move to frame almost all of it in terms of perspective rather than opinion. Mm. It's like, because there's a way in which most of what we see is in some sense sort of self-evident from where we're standing. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, if you and I seem to be seeing things differently which is a way of framing a conflict that's very different from you know disagreeing right or something it's if we're, you and i are seeing things differently then it's very different for me to for me to say well you know that doesn't make any sense because blah 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 but instead to say well how how are you seeing it where where are you standing such that it looks like that Mm-hmm. And there's something really almost kind of hilariously fundamental about this, where I think most people don't pause long enough to consider that other people actually sort of think the things they think. Mm-hmm. They may not think them in the same ways that you do. Like maybe you have a deeply reasoned argument and they just have an intuition or something, or maybe they have a deeply, uh, uh, you know, uh, felt intuition and you just have some bullshit argument you know i'm not i didn't want to reify argument as correct and intuition is wrong but it's yeah. it's like you know um but you know they might have different you might have different types of ways of seeing that you're doing right yeah. um but but people actually think the things that they're saying they 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 in some sense are actually generating some sort of sense making that's causing them to think say things 
And a lot of arguments are like, people don't actually pause to go, well, how would I need to be thinking in order to actually be saying what they're saying? Like, yeah. and, and this is basic perspective taking. And so on the fractal scale, part of why this occurs is that people don't do this internally either. They have internal disagreements where they also, part of them asserts, this is what I think. And never mind the part where I sometimes do things that contradict that. That's not me. Uh-huh. Like, no, that's, that's also you. Yep. <laughs> Just because part of you grabbed the mic and is speaking doesn't mean that that's all of you. You're, you are your whole. And so being able to go, oh, well, what, what do I actually think such that I'm doing this thing that part of me thinks is really weird? Like, I, I'm making some sort of sense of that. It's not, it's not random. I'm, I, I seem to have a very, in fact, consistent pattern of this weird thing that I do. So there's some sense that I'm making that generates that as a, as a behavior. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's one of the, it's almost, that's, you just outlined what is one of the biggest pieces of the meta crisis, which is the inability to understand other people's perspectives as their perspectives. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. Locks you into a type of toxic discourse, mm-hmm. toxic dialogue. That's not even dialogue, it's just like a toxic attempt or just argumentation. Fighting with words. Yeah, it's an opinion-based, very shallow, very ineffective. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get locked into that uh, in this society and this kind of upbringing in in the world that we're in. And the idea that, you know, for me, the, the most recent and very relevant version of that is like those idiots think that the vaccine will protect them those they won't wear the mask because they don't think it's works those people are just such idiots it's a othering it's a labeling it's an othering it's yeah. bad faith as we yeah, refer yeah, to totally. bad faith but i think this is I really like this. We've had a really nice talk. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing that I will take away from this is the idea, which is just delicious, actually. If I think of you and I as an organism, your left eye, I'm right eye, and the difference between our perspective is deeply illuminating. It is unlocking it unlocks an entire dimension to think that the difference between our perspectives unlocks an entire dimension of perception is just god that's a delicious concept Mm -hmm. i love that it just makes me think like if you if i had a wife that we are this organism and i'm left eye and she's right eye and to think of her perspective as right eye perspective of the organism that we are is so much different than her opinion 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. And, and how different it shapes my response, my reaction, how I hold that, how I hear it. Oh my God, that's beautiful. That's mm -hmm. definitely what I'm going to take away from this there. And the other analogy that you made there was that the difference there is energy. And it so is. And if mm -hmm. you can hold it right, it can fuel you. Just like sexual polarity can, it can breathe life into your life, can breathe life into your body for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. So too can the difference between your perspective breathe life into your perspective and be life-giving. Mm -hmm. mm, that's beautiful. We so often hold conflict and disagreement in a really wounded place. Yeah. And to be able to hold our disagreements, I think is, that is the next step. That is like literally like where our foot meets the ground, moving forward towards a more whole thing. That's how mm -hmm. we, and that's, you know, we acknowledge that game B is pretty good at that. Not perfect, but quite good at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're all still learning. We, we do not collectively know how to do this already. And we're all holding different pieces, bits and pieces of how it's going to work. And that's why such deep listening is, is necessary. Yeah. Perspective holding. And, yeah. and uh, I, what I just reflected on that I like so much that was so delicious. I also am holding the other thing that I thought was so cool that you said, which was, it takes a village to understand a village. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same Which, thing. Ultimately, it's the, it's the same thing, but it also brings the idea of really difficult to grasp complexity down to earth. Yeah, because really difficult to grasp complexity is like geopolitics and global economies. There's like right. really people difficult. All, people, people are like, how do we solve the whatever conflict? It's like, bro, how do you solve the conflict about the dishes getting left in the sink? Yes, literally. <laughs> like literally that, you know, classic conflict, right? Yeah, and to be able to hold it properly, to be able to hold, there's like a difference here in how we want things done in our household that is energy. It's like, and it can be destructive. Mm -hmm. And I love like the, this brings up a Petersonian point for me, which is like, if you go to a person's house and, and, you know, they're a couple and their dishes are, the kitchen is a mess. It kind of gives you a bit of unease because you know that they haven't thought about this sufficiently. Right, right. And, and that, that <laughs> the word sufficiently there is doing an interesting amount of work. They may have thought about this quite a lot. But I, I, said thought, to, I said thought about thought. it. Right, right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I sort of heard that and then reparsed it. <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, but it's like, yeah, they haven't, they haven't sorted out the difference. Yes. yes. You know, it's, it hasn't. They haven't, hasn't organized birthed, the energy. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't organized the energy. It hasn't birthed the, uh, the, the depth. Yeah. Um, it's in a state of, of compromise, you know, and that's, oh. that's why I make it really clear that, you know, we're not talking about averaging perspectives here. We're not talking about half yes. ways. Yeah. You know, if you just needed a halfway between two eyes, bruh, be Cyclops. you would have one eye. Yeah, you would have one eye. They, they would not. As, these things are expensive. Yeah, like, evolutionary, <laughs> very expensive. 
<laughs> you know, that. if if you just needed one of them, if you just needed an average, you would only have one. Um, and this also, uh, go yeah. ahead. No, go. This this also brings up for me as as I acknowledge the depth that comes from the difference in two people's perspectives. I reel this back onto all my relationships in which a difference in perspective was destructive mm-hmm. and destroyed that I wasn't able to manage, that we weren't able to use the energy properly and that I, that ultimately the relationship ended. Mm-hmm. And especially recently, that's a very salient thread for me because we disagreed and we couldn't figure it out and we couldn't get on the same page about things. And that came to a destructive place. So it resonates, this concept resonates really super true for me, um, just how I've experienced it. Mm -hmm. So it's been a great talk, man. I'm so glad that we went through the, the, the rigmarole of aligning our schedules and that we were, yeah, so so worth it. That we were persistent here. Yeah. So worth it. So I'm glad to, glad to talk to you and I appreciate your insights. I feel like we left eye right eyed really well today. Yeah. I have, I have, I have a a thing I'll just put out, which is that I I've been working on a song and part of that song is relevant to some of what we've, what we've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I could sing a little bit of it right Mm, now. I would love that. Cool. Um, Let me just, uh, I I realized this recently. Um, I need to change the settings on my microphone in order for that to not sound awful. Um, Currently optimized for speech. Uh, Okay. Uh, Actually, hang on a second. Okay. Um, Cool. This should be better. So this is this is for this is part of the song. It's in the middle. I said I sang the first piece on a on the first podcast I did this year with Joe Lightfoot. So if people want to go try tracking down this song that's not fully released, and piece it together. One piece over there, and there's another piece here, and I still haven't finished the other piece. So you are whole. You have got your own thing going. And I have so little way of knowing everything you must hold. You are whole. If I see no other choice, I'll fight you. But I'd rather thrill and delight you if I may be so bold. If I may be so bold, you are You are whole. You are whole. 
But in order to rock your world, I need to let you rock mine too. It's co-creation, not just something that I do to you. To find the neural pathways deep inside each other's grooves, we need to find our spines and also hold a heart that moves. Stop looking for an open door. One, two, three, four, preset in stone. Start laying on the pieces of this puzzle we can't solve alone. Find the harmonics in our collective connect home and resolve the dissonance into a fractal home. That's amazing. I love that. And yes, so much of that is so relevant for what we just talked about. Mm. Thank yeah. you so much for singing that. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I think that's my first first guest who's sung on the podcast. I really appreciate that. Nice. Nice, Malcolm. Thanks for being here with me. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. This has been such a pleasure. And uh, feels 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 cool to feels cool to be stepping more into the public conversation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, kind of interested in where I'll be going from here. You and me both other people other people to talk to and 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 why you know it's like why why would i want to wh why do i want to be on a podcast right mm -hmm. um but i think i'm figuring that out by doing this so mm -hmm. well thanks so much man yeah take care see you Malcolm. okay you guys i hope that was as helpful i hope that was helpful and enjoyable i really super enjoyed that and it's been so useful i've been talking about this left eye right eye the difference in our perspective how that gives us a third dimension uh depth perception i love that um if you like this show consider sharing it and giving it an itunes review that's helpful and support it on patreon it's patreon.com slash airy in the air and like i said in the intro please consider signing up for a free no financial obligation you could always gift if that felt right philosophical coaching call with ya boy i would love to listen to you and to give you my reflections in the similar way that i reflect to all my guests so that's airy in the air at gmail.com email me and i'll send you a scheduling link thank you so much for being here peace love and save the whales we'll see you in the next episode
people the lucky with the fragile bones The ones who don't worry about getting too old The way the people the happy with the broken hearts The ones who draw a picture and proclaim that it's hard But you, and you, and you, and you You're just an animal developed in two You, and you, and you, and you I'm on knees and dance, so do you